Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, the editor at the Security Ledger. It's been another really interesting week in the security industry, and we're here once again at the end of the week to talk to the esteemed Mark Stanislav, a security evangelist at the firm Duo Security, about the week's events. One of the big stories of the week actually came from Duo Labs. Researcher Zach Lanier discovered a vulnerability in PayPal's two-factor authentication feature for mobile devices that would allow that feature to be bypassed. Mark, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. And why don't we start off talking about what you guys discovered uh, about PayPal's two-factor authentication feature, which is called Security Key. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me back, Paul. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right. It has been uh, not just a busy week, but a busy couple of months, with, uh, especially for Zach on our team. Um, so a little, little while ago, Zach and uh, a couple other people got reached out to by a friend of the company, uh, Dan Saltman, who I think more or less stumbled upon uh, through a happenstance of having his Wi-Fi disabled that, hey, the two-factor that normally should be requested here is not being requested because it, you know, the the app didn't know how to handle when my Wi-Fi was disabled and basically let him bypass that within the app. So that kind of raised red flags for him saying, hey, that's weird. That's not how this process is supposed to work. And um, initially reached out to PayPal. Uh, PayPal was a little bit slow on the uptake to, um, you know, figure out what that meant uh, entirely. So Dan re- reached out to our team. Uh, Zach took over in terms of reproducing the bug and kind of going down that rabbit hole um, because, of course, Dan thought, hey, this is just a mobile-related bug. But what Zach actually found through the the rest of the research and actually kind of diving into the APIs and and making a fake PayPal client just to test this kind of thing is it actually is a much bigger bypass of 2FA, not just in terms of mobile, but in terms of their 2FA in general. So let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, in terms of noticing it, this was a a situation where you, if you were to try and log into PayPal with a mobile device and you you had the two-factor authentication feature enabled for your account, basically what would happen is it would seem like you were logged in, you would see your account there, but then you would get this message pop up and say, oh, PayPal mobile doesn't support two-factor authentication and we're logging you out. But in the meantime, you could look and say, well, I did just get logged in, but now you're logging me out. Is that basically how this thing got discovered? Like everything we talk about in security, there's always the risk versus convenience. And for PayPal, um, it would appear anyways that the decision they made was, hey, you can maybe access some of your details, but not all of your details. And so effectively, it appears anyways that their intention was to provide some detail without providing the keys to the kingdom. Uh, unfortunately, whenever you make those trade-offs, sometimes a little bit of that, uh, you know, that, that magic security that we all want to have gets left behind accidentally. And that's what appeared to have happened in this scenario. Uh, so not only was the mobile app affected, but also the underlying APIs themselves. So let's talk about these APIs. So APIs, application program interface, and these are basically toolkits that as a developer you can use to connect to PayPal service and integrate that into an application that you might be developing yourself. Is that right? Correct. Okay. And what was the, the fault with the way the, PayPal's, uh, this is a, a web API basically, was created? Part one, part two. Part one is with the mobile client itself. As Zach showed during his research, there was actually a value which literally said 2FA enabled true, 
which would be the um, attribute that would tell the mobile app, hey, this person has two-factor, you know, don't let them do anything else. Now, we've seen this happen time and time again where you trust the client, whether it's a web browser or a mobile client, you trust the client too much. And so in our case, Zach was able to hit 2FA-enabled false and was logged in as, as you would expect. Um, so that's one underlying issue is trusting a client to pr- protect what the client can control is, is really never a good, uh, never a really a good way to handle security because you're always putting the trust in the wrong person uh, in that case. Part two is the APIs themselves then, in the case of a user that did have two-factor fact, two enabled, uh, or the security key as, as PayPal calls it, through creating a specially crafted API call, kind of mimicking what the mobile client would do anyways, Zach was actually able to leverage those mobile APIs and, in fact, bypass two-factor and actually using normal credentials for a, a target account, let's say, that was previously fished, if you will, um, he was actually able to then transfer money from the target into his account as a proof of concept. Right. So it's important to say, first of all, that in order to do this, you would need to have a, a, an account holder's login and password. And so this is, you know, this is for people who have enabled that extra step of security, which is two-factor authentication and, and aren't just using single-factor, like a password, to, to secure their PayPal account. So that's kind of a caveat here. But the larger issue is how much of a obstacle is it that um, somebody would need access to the PayPal API in order to then take advantage of this this loophole or this bypass? I mean, is that a, is that a high bar to cross that you would be a PayPal application developer and have access to that API, or is that pretty much available to anybody? Um, so, you know, Zach did this the good old-fashioned hacker way, and he uh, intercepted traffic that was legitimate traffic uh, in normal, just, da- you know, daily use of these uh, uh, these APIs, technically. So, you know, every every day we use PayPal or mobile client. Uh, of course, data is going back and forth between our mobile clients and our web browsers and everything else. Uh, Zach just looked at that traffic, broke down what that traffic was doing, and then manipulated it as he needed. So, um, you know, not without... Without too much effort, he was able to just make a Python script that would effect, uh, effectively just mimic what would normally be happening with the mobile client. And then using that custom script could just then pass in credentials. So and, he didn't, right. So he didn't need the API at all, in other words. He just needed to know that that, that that flag was there. Yeah, effectively, he was watching traffic that the API calls were actually being made by the mobile client and then took that traffic and then recreated it. So uh, he didn't have to have, you know, special knowledge of APIs. He basically just had to, you know, look at some traffic, manipulate the traffic, and send that traffic himself. And, um, you know, the what's somewhat ironic here is, you know, PayPal has been a early adopter and kind of a leader in many of these technologies. They were one of the first online payments firms, really one of the first online uh, businesses of any kind to to allow a two-factor authentication uh, option for authenticating to their service. Um, I think E-Trade was out early with it as well, but they were certainly early in. Is this a case of, you know, fail, failing to keep up with times and, and maybe failing to circle back and say, okay, well, we've had this two-factor authentication feature in there. Maybe it's time to revamp it or take a look at how we've implemented it. And, and, uh, or, or what's your sense? Because they've got a good reputation security-wise. No, absolutely. I mean, Pay- PayPal is a 
pretty much a rock solid company. I mean, they're 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 they've been around a long time. They have a great security staff. Um, I think if I can talk to kind of a, a larger maybe problem that I that I'm seeing anyways is organizations, whether they're young, younger or older, and they're two-factor, when they start adopting newer technologies, so in this, in this case, a mobile client, they start having to decide, how do we integrate these new clients, these new developer APIs, um, this new interface? How do we leverage those, but then also keep our security where it, where it was at before? So in 2006, I believe, when PayPal initially launched, um, you know, mobile apps were not something that we were really talking about, of course. So um, in, in this scope, and I think in, in other contexts, we're seeing organizations acting in an agile manner to provide their customers what they want, and then trying to figure out how they apply their security controls that they have deployed or want to deploy against that. And I think in this case, PayPal probably, um, whether it was a breakdown in communication between the mobile team and the security team, or it was something that was viewed as we have mitigations in place that maybe didn't actually hold up. You know, again, PayPal's great, great company, great security team. Uh, but I think when you have enough technologies, enough uh, methods of interacting with a service like PayPal has, uh, things are definitely going to fall through the cracks once in a while. And that's no different than any other company in uh, the IT space. What's your sense on this distinction between how you're interacting with their service via mobile devices and how you're interacting with them via maybe a traditional web browser and and web session? Is there a lower bar for security when you're accessing it from the mobile uh, realm than than from the web? So I I think the thing to um, put that in, in proper context is, is the account from a mobile client equal in privilege to an account from a web client or some other client? And if the answer is yes, then we have to be sure that we uh, treat that authentication process in the same manner. So uh, what we're seeing in in different instances, um, I'm I'm blanking on which company it was, but a couple years ago, a company had rolled out two-factor authentication. Um, uh, They had a couple different ways to access their service, one of which was WebDAV. So the protocol that you can basically mount more or less file shares and then transfer files back and forth. And they did not actually protect their web dev with two-factor, only their web interface and a couple other interfaces. So as an attacker, if one set of credentials can access files four different ways and one of those ways doesn't require two-factor, I'm just going to use the one way that doesn't require two-factor. One thing that I'm doing for some research uh, coming up in the coming months is I actually found a company that will let you set a uh, basically like a favorite color and a PIN number. And if you don't have your two-factor token, you can then just type in those two values. So effectively, you've taken two-factor and said, well, it doesn't have to be two-factor. It can just be more one, you know, single-factor, multi, you know, multi-method single-factor. So if, as an attacker, it's, I have to steal Mark's username, password, and phone, or I have to steal Mark's username, password, favorite color, and PIN, I'm going to take I'm going to take the latter every single time. Yeah, so be- because there are so many colors to choose from really, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's right. one of those things the attacker will always and this is no different for any any sort of attack, the attacker is always going to take the path of least resistance. Right. And if and if and if organizations don't apply security controls in the same manner across all of their attack surface, attackers will just go for the easy one. I mean, one of the things that this brings up is that not every action in a particular session is of equal value and while it might be bad for somebody to be able to get 
access to your PayPal account and see your PayPal balance or see recent transactions. Uh, you know, Zach was also able to transfer money uh, to himself, and that's really bad. So uh, at the very least, it might be an argument for saying, let's put some additional security, particularly around these high-value activities like transferring money. Yeah, absolutely. And and the reality is um, authentication doesn't just have to mean session authentication. You can very well extend uh, authentication platforms. So we really have to think about beyond just session level authentication, what other aspects, what other major you know, milestones in a session are rare enough and important enough to add that extra little security control. And I think for most people, and perhaps not if you're uh, you know, an eBay fiend, but I think most people, maybe they use PayPal once, twice a week. If you asked me for a second level of authentication every time I transferred money, I would have no problem with that because that seems like a reasonable risk reward. I don't have to worry about people stealing money out of my account and I'm only moderately inconvenienced, you know, once every couple, you know, days, which is uh minor compared to the the theft of money. So another story that came up this week that also touches on two-factor authentication, there was news about Reuters' website being involved in a domain hijacking where, where visitors to Reuters were being redirected to a webpage celebrating the Syrian Electronic Army. This is a, a hacking group that is supports the Syrian regime, and they've had a number of actions against Western media outlets, including the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post, actually, who they perceive as being anti uh, Syrian regime. As it turns out, the attack was not against Reuters, but against a third-party ad provider that they use, a company called Taboola. That company's CEO said that it had employees whose accounts got fished in a targeted phishing attack against them, and that they used two-factor authentication to control access to employee accounts, uh, but that those accounts were still compromised. Tell us your thoughts on this particular incident. It's hard to nail down always the supply chain of how you're doing your, your, your business. So in this case, Reuters themselves didn't get hacked. However, a widget on the Reuters.com website did. Now, if you think about things like DNS, you think about web hosting companies, about content delivery networks, about you know ad, ad agencies, there's a lot of different things that could go wrong and could be attacked Sure. in order to get an end goal. And I think in this case... Um, well, and with the ad networks too, you know, often what's happening is these ad networks are legitimate companies, but they're, you know, they might contract with a customer, an ad provider who is malicious. They might start out innocuously with completely legitimate ads and then start feeding into their stream uh, malicious ads. So it, it could be very hard to, to track these down and, and I identify a bad actor in the chain. Yeah, The two-factor authentication that they claim that they had been using, two, two ways this could have gone. Uh, a, the place or places that they have deployed two-factor may have not been the route that the attacker took in. So we were just talking about um, uh, you know, applying a security control across the board, and if it's not, an attacker will go to the easiest path. So we don't necessarily know that someone, you know, let's say, bypassed their two-factor. They may have just not gone towards the thing that had two-factor. Um, the other thing is they did mention phishing, which depending on who's interpreting what that means um, at that organization, what could have happened is the attacker could have sent a link in an email that when it was clicked on, that uh, that the user who had privilege with their web browser or some other me uh, means to that interface could have actually executed a command 
on behalf of that attacker. And generally, we re- you know um, refer to that as cross-site request forgery. So some other uh, entity is giving you a link that will then, when clicked, execute a command or a action, uh, typically in a web browser, that would, let's say, add an administrative user or disable two-factor on a web, you know, on a web uh, application. So we don't right. necessarily know all the moving parts, but there's a lot of ways that doesn't, you know, necessarily imply, oh, hey, they defeated two-factor. They could have done a lot of clever things or just walked around the two-factor to some other easier target. Right. And I mean, that seems to be one of the, so, so more people are using two-factor authentication. That's great. You know, people, I think there's broad recognition that username and password is not adequate protection. Um, but as is often the case with security, you end up playing a game of whack-a-mole, which is as you make authentication harder to, to breach, harder to hack, um, the, the action flows to another weak link in the chain. And, and obviously, when you're talking about web applications, uh, there are many weak links. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the other point there, too, is uh, whether you look at the Verizon data breach uh, report or you look at some of the uh, work that Mandiant has done and published... We know that during an attack, stolen credentials will be used almost every single time. What we don't, what we don't believe is that the initial breach necessarily has to come from credentials. So in this case, if someone found a web application vulnerability and got into the network at this organization, they then could have sniffed network traffic or stolen passwords or stolen password hashes and cracked them and then used those credentials once inside the network to then attack, where a lot of times, unfortunately, we don't see two-factor deployed internally. We usually only see it deployed at things like VPNs or SSH or a web application, where once an attacker's in a network, it's a very easy proposition often to actually get credentials and then use those and move laterally. And that's one thing that we really, really talk about um, at Duo when we talk to customers and and just about two-factor in general is, Two-factor is a really good security control to stop an attacker once they've already breached some other way into your uh, organization. It's not all about passwords to break in, but it usually is about passwords once an attacker is in. Right. Right. Okay. Well, we're almost into July, Mark, which is unbelievable, really, Um, uh, especially given the winter we had. Uh, (laughs) But uh, one of the things that's coming up next month is you guys are a Michigan-based company, and there's a big Detroit-based conference, Converge, that – Duo is going to be taking part in. Tell us a little bit about Converge. Yeah, so uh, convergeconference.org is the website. We would love for everyone to come out. You don't have to just be a Michigan resident. We love people internationally coming. We definitely have many of those planning to come in already. So Converge Conference is really the first feature Detroit, Southeast Michigan-based conference in about 10 years. For the last three years, we have had a really successful B-Sides Detroit. So based off that success, uh, the organizers of the last three B-Sides had decided to do a two-day feature conference, which is Converge, and then also still have a one-day B-Sides Detroit event. So that'll run July 10th, 11th for Converge, and then July 12th for the B-Sides event. And that'll be downtown Detroit at a very nicely renovated part of the uh, Kobo Center. If anyone's not familiar with that, it is a very beautiful area down just by the river. And uh, we'll be having actually four great keynotes at that event. So we'll have Richard Steenen, Jose Nazario, Nick Prococo, and then uh, our very own Zach Lanier. So if you wanted to ask Zach any uh, dirty questions about this whole PayPal situation that he didn't publish about, I'm sure he'll be glad to after a drink or two. (laughs) 
And then looking a little bit further ahead, there's going to be Black Hat and DEF CON. I know that you're, you're all going to be out there. Oh, we'll, we'll all be out there. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more details, but Zach, Zach will be presenting at Black Hat. He'll be presenting at DEF CON with me. Zach and I will be presenting together at a securing the IoT event out in Vegas. And then we'll also, or I should say, I'll also be presenting at uh, PasswordsCon this year. We'll look forward to hearing more about that uh, later in, well, it'll be in July next time we talk. But Mark, once again, thanks for coming in and speaking to us about the week's events on the Security Ledger podcast. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. Mark Stanislav is a security evangelist at Duo Security, and he was speaking to us today about two-factor authentication and a breach and a vulnerability in PayPal's two-factor authentication service. Thanks, Mark. Yep. 